Life Church, it's so great to be able to be with you this weekend, whether you're from our Appleton campus, our Germantown campus, our Brookfield campus, Milwaukee campus, online campus, wherever you are joining us from, wherever you are, whether you're online or in person at a campus, welcome today. Starting a brand new series called Motley Crude. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to get there in just a minute. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen when we get to that point in the message. But this brand new series, I want to just kind of set this up today for you. Uh, the whole idea behind Motley Crue is not about the 80s band. So sorry to, to, to let anybody down, but Tommy Lee will not be a guest speaker uh, at one of our messages in, in this series. Um, this really has nothing to do with the 80s band Motley Crue. So for those of you who are fellow uh, kids of the 80s, um, <laughs> rock on. But it's just, it's, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the disciples. Because the phrase Motley Crue predates the band of the 80s. It's this group of people that Jesus selected were a ragtag group of people. They were from all walks of life. They were not people that you would have probably associated together. They probably didn't necessarily associate with each other prior to this. Matter of fact, Matthew, the tax collector, was brand new in his faith. And so he would not have had anything to do with, um, well, with, with someone like Peter uh, or, or, or Simon the Zealot. And we're going to unpack some of that as we go along. What, what, I, what I want to do over the next several weeks leading up to Easter is I want to look at these individuals. Who are they? Why did Jesus choose them? What relevance do they, their being chosen, and their lives and choices have to us today in the 21st century? What I think you'll find is that in Jesus' infinite wisdom, he chose men from all types of diversity, from all types of backgrounds, from all types of even different persuasions politically, and brought them together and had this uh, motley crew. That's the best way I know how to describe them. And he used these men to change the world. So today, instead of looking at just one disciple or two disciples, I just kind of want to look at an overview of the 12. So that's the reason why I want to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because if we were in Jesus' shoes and we were thinking just for a moment about, well, we're going to change the world. So if you were going to be sent by God to die on the cross for the sins of humanity to change the world, and God said you could choose 12 people to help you change the world, well, that'd be kind of difficult, wouldn't it? But who would you choose? Well, you probably would find people that were influencers and, and uh, you know, how many, how many Instagram followers do they have or, or, or people that were financially powerful. So what's their net worth? Or, or people that maybe are involved in politics or government or, or they're billionaires or, or, or they're entrepreneurs or they're innovators or creators or thinkers. I mean, you, you would just think of like some of like the top of the top. Yet that's not what Jesus did. Paul writes about how really the disciples were chosen and quite frankly, how God chooses people. And all of us are called and all of us are chosen by the Lord, but it kind of, well, it's kind of humbling. So let's look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul writes, brothers and sisters, 
Think of what you were when you were called. So think about the disciples for a moment. Not many of you were wise by human standards. That would be true. Not many were influential. That would be true. Not many were of noble birth. That would be true. There's only one of the disciples that actually has any amount of nobility in his heritage. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that were not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Let's unpack this for a minute. A couple of thoughts as we look at this motley crew that Jesus chose as we began this series today. First of all, Jesus chooses the ordinary. Jesus chooses the ordinary. Jesus uses nobodies to tell everybody about somebody. Let me say that again. Jesus uses nobodies to tell everybody about somebody. Paul writes that that those that God calls, he calls those that are probably overlooked in the world and kind of overlooked in society and, and may be influential, may not, may be powerful, may not, may have something, may not. But God typically tends to use those things that the world kind of discards or despises or kind of sidelines and, and does that. The ordinary, the overlooked, the average I used to always tell it to my dad when I ran our report card home. Hey, dad, you realize that like the disciples that changed the world were relatively average guys. I mean, so a C is kind of a good grade to which he would tell me that I would lose my driving privileges if my grades didn't come up. Amen. Can I get a witness for that? Right. So uh, the truth of the matter is Jesus chooses average people. And even in some cases, below average people. And again, Paul says, because the boasting can't be in themselves, but can only be in the Lord. The disciples were basically uneducated in a lot of ways. Some of them were educated. uh, But the fishermen were basically just kind of an average working class group of people that, that were... We're, we're not a, a, a known to be an educated group. There, there, there was one of the disciples that, that came from, from, from the lineage of David's house that, 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 that had royalty. Um, you know, uh, Matthew, the tax collector, would have been someone who would have had money, but he did it because he kind of, he, well, he, he just kind of was an unscrupulous business guy, in essence, that w- that's selling out his people and, and, and kind of skimming off the top. I mean, there, there was all of this that was going on. But here's what we know about all of them. They're all Jewish men. 20 years of age or younger. Think about that for a moment. So when Jesus chooses them, they're around 20 years of age or younger. And then when Jesus leaves, they're in their early 20s. And they're there to change the world. They would have been overlooked by the rabbinical system. And they're going to be apostles. They're going to be preachers and teachers. They're going to take the gospel around the world. They're going to be rabbis in essence. But yet the rabbinical system would have overlooked them because here's what would have happened. Young Jewish boys were brought into education in the rabbinical system. And by the time of 8, 9, 10, they were kind of pre-selected. And by the time they hit, hit around 12 years of age, 10 to 12 years of age, if they didn't make the cut, they were sent back to learn their father's trade. A carpenter? Kind of interesting about Jesus, isn't it? A fisherman? Tax collector? 
Whatever the father's trade and business was, they typically were sent back and that's what they did. But only the best of the best, the elite of the elite, think of it like an Ivy League, someone that's getting to go to Yale or Harvard or, 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 or some East Coast Ivy League or, or West Coast school. And, 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 the, and the reality is, is that only the best of the best made it. And those were the people who were highly educated and highly trained. And they were the ones who would become the, the, the rabbis. They'd become the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They'd become the religious elect of the day that were politically powerful and religiously powerful. Because you have to remember, that was how the Jewish government was set up. It was all interconnected with church, God, religion, politics, government. It was all one. These guys would have all been overlooked. And Jesus picks 12 individuals who the world says they're not smart enough to be rabbis, to be rabbis. They're not smart enough to be apostles, to, to be apostles. He, he, he looked at them and men who were inexperienced, men who, who weren't trained to, 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 to write and to read and to, and, and, and in some cases. Now, some of them were, but, but, but some of them weren't. And, and, and they were just, what I'm trying to say is they were not who anybody would have picked to do this. They were ordinary average people. Maybe you feel that way. Remember this about the disciples and about yourself. Jesus doesn't call, call the equipped. He equips the called. That's exactly what he does with the disciples. He doesn't call those who are equipped, those who are wise in the world, those who made the cut. He calls people who are ordinary, who are average, maybe even overlooked. And he equips them to change the world. Second thing that we notice is that Jesus chooses the unlikely. Jesus chooses the unlikely. This is kind of where I get the phrase motley crew and kind of how I attach it to the disciples. I'm not trying to be irreverent and I hope it doesn't come across that way. But the word, phrase motley crew is by definition an unusual mixed group. An unusual mixed group. Think about this for a minute. Simon the Zealot Simon the Zealot is someone who is, who is a, a complete political extremist, who is so pro-Israel, so anti-Rome, so Israel's under the Roman occupancy, that he was an insurrectionist in essence. He, he was a, he was a, a political, uh, uh, just complete extremist, if you would. It, everything he could do to overthrow the Roman government, to try to do that, to try to do anything to, to, to do this, he was all about uh, Israel being a preeminent power again. He was all about the, 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 the temple and, and, and about Israel's power and about pushing Rome away. And so probably when Jesus comes and says, hey, we're going to change the world and, and, and we're, we're going we're gonna to build a new kingdom, he's thinking, that's what I want to be a part of because I'm, I'm known as a zealot. I'm so much committed to the state of Israel and anti-Rome, whom Israel's under their occupancy, that I am, man, I'm all about this and I want nothing to do with anybody who's not. Jesus calls him. Political extremist. Jesus also calls Matthew the tax collector. So a tax collector would have been viewed by Israeli society at that time as a sellout because they worked for the Roman government and they would tax the Israeli government and the Israeli people, the Jews, and then they would also skim off the top. So they're cheating their people and they're actually the representation of the occupying government to the Jews. That's who Matthew was. 
he and Simon the Zealot are complete opposites. You would have never put the two guys in the same group, much less the same room. And I think maybe when they're doing road trips, at some point in time, Jesus had fun and said, hey, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, you guys are gonna, you guys are gonna be, you got the same hotel room here. You guys go and this is your hotel room, room 165, whatever. Can you imagine? I mean, th- th- he's bringing them together. You look at James and John, who are both brothers, and, and, and they're, they're fishermen. So they're Galileans. They're, you know, Matthew would have been in the city uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem, in the epicenter, and more, way more urban. You, you've got James and John, man. They, they, you know, they, they had a 15-year-old F-150. They're just like just some good old boys, never meaning no harm. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, they're just kind of like, and, and, and they were called the sons of thunder because they were always in the middle of some fight, some action, some something. I mean, they were just always in the middle of some drama. Probably more like brawlers and, 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 and a bit of agitators. Jesus chooses them and he throws them in the mix. And here's the one that I simply still try to get around. He chooses Judas, whom he knows will betray him. Yet he chooses him. And he loves him. And he invests himself in somebody who is going to stab him in the back. Matter of fact, I'm so intrigued by the love of Jesus for someone who would turn his back on him. Yet God loved him and called him. That on Easter Sunday, when we conclude this series, Motley Crue, we're going to talk about Judas. Jesus chose the unlikely. Next observation I want to give you is that Jesus chooses the imperfect. I love this. Jesus chooses the imperfect. The remainder of this series, we're going to look at some of these disciples. But I just want you to understand, these disciples were not selected for their merits, but they were selected for their willingness. Each disciple, every time they were called, every time Jesus went to each of the 12 and said, come, follow me, and I'll make you, immediately, the Bible says, they left everything and they followed Jesus. Immediately, they left everything and they followed Jesus. They didn't wait to sell the business. They didn't wait to sell what they were doing. They didn't go home in some accounts to to communicate it to, to family members. They just followed Jesus. They had this reckless abandon. They were just willing to do what he called them to do. And their willingness would result for all of them, except for two, for their life to be given as a martyr for the, for the sake of Jesus Christ. So they're following a man who's ultimately going to lead them to give up their own life for the cause of Christ. Wow. But he chooses them in their imperfection. It's the same reason why he chooses you and he chooses me some 2,000 years later. It's not because we're all that. It's because we're willing. And his strength becomes perfected in our weakness. We decrease, he increases. He shines through us. He's looking for us to be a a light, a window for his light to shine through. And if we're willing, 
to immediately leave everything and follow him, he can use us. If you're wondering today, can Jesus use me because I did this? And could Jesus use me because I said that? And could Jesus use me because this is my past? Just know, if you hear me today, and inside of you, you're saying, I want to be used of God. Yes, the answer is yes, if you're just but willing. Because he's not looking for you to be equipped. He'll do that. He's not looking for you to be known in the world. He's not looking for you to be powerful, influential. And if you are, he'll utilize that. But that's not the prerequisite. The prerequisite is, are you willing in your own imperfections to leave everything and just follow him? The last thing is that Jesus used these 12 men, these 12 disciples to change the world. He used these 12 disciples to change the world. I want to read one verse from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. These are Jesus' words with the disciples before he leaves this earth. He says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is a city that they ran at the time, Judea, which would have been the area, Samaria, even bigger, and to the ends of the earth. The disciples spread the gospel, they healed the sick, they cared for the poor, and they led the church. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Tradition claims that this was the outcome of the disciples. Scholarship tells us that James was the first missionary to Spain, which may not seem like a whole lot to you, um, unless you're like a Barcelona football club fan. But Spain, in, in, at the turn, at the beginning of, of that turn of the first century, would have been the epicenter of progress. It would have been the foremost leading, most powerful, innovative area in the known world. And James is the first missionary to take the gospel to Spain. But he'll be beheaded by King Herod, a king of the Jews, trying to squash this Jesus revolution. John, one of the brothers of James and John, sons of thunder, the one that Jesus was loved, John the beloved, he will write five books in the Bible. And they will try to boil him alive, but he won't boil. So they'll exile him to the Isle of Patmos. And there he will die at some point. We do not know. But it's on that island that he writes the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Thomas will be the first missionary to India. And he will give his life as a martyr there. Jude or Thaddeus will take the gospel to Egypt, and he will be martyred in Ararat. Simon the Zealot, the one who was this political extremist that was all about Jerusalem, all about Israel, all about pro-Israeli, it was all about that, will actually take the gospel outside of Israel to the Gentiles, to Egypt. And he'll die as a martyr. It's amazing how Jesus changes you. Matthew, the tax collector, He'll go to Ethiopia, and he'll die as a martyr. Bartholomew will go to Armenia, and historians tell us that he will be skinned alive for his preaching of the gospel. Peter, who will lead the New Testament church, who is a part of the, 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 the inner circle with Jesus of Peter, James, and John, 
he'll be crucified in Rome upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified the way Jesus was, his Lord and Savior. Andrew, Peter's brother, will be a martyr for the sake of Jesus Christ in Greece. James, son of Alphaeus. So yeah, there's two James in the, in the, in the disciples, in this motley crew. Can you imagine when Jesus says James, they're both looking, right? He'll also be a martyr in Greece. Philip will take the gospel to Syria, and he'll be martyred by hanging. And Judas, well, you know, he'll betray Jesus, and his guilt will overtake him, and he'll take his own life. So why this series? Why this message? Aaron, why, why are we really talking about this? Two reasons. First of all, these men were important to Jesus. They're important to Jesus. As we lead up to Easter, which is the, the, the biggest Christian holiday that we have and the time that we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I just think it's appropriate that these are the men that Jesus chose. Why did he choose them? And who are they? And what relevance does that have to us today? These are the men that Jesus spent his life, his professional known life with. We know more about this three and a half year period of Jesus' life than any other period of his life. We know about his birth. We have a couple of snapshots from his childhood. We know nothing basically from his teens through his 20s. But this three and a half year period, the Bible says of this time period that Jesus did more and said more than this, than, than, than this world could ever even contain of, of what he said and did. And Jesus spent these days with these 12. Jesus reveals himself to them as the Son of God. Not to everyone else, but to these particular individuals. Why? We're going to unpack some of that. He spends his last moments before his death, burial, and resurrection at the Last Supper where we've got communion and Holy Communion is basically, that's where it's instituted, all the way to the, to, to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be taken away. And then when Jesus is resurrected, who does he reveal himself, eat with, walk with, and talk with? It's these disciples. They were important to Jesus. There's a reason why we know these men. But for us, the reason for this message in this series is that they're important to Jesus, but they're imperfect to us. Let me explain this. They're imperfect to us. The Bible shares of their strengths, but also their weaknesses. It shows their humanity. Their imperfections demonstrate how a perfect God uses imperfect people to perform his perfect will. Let me say that again. There, the disciples' imperfections demonstrate how a perfect God uses imperfect people to perform his perfect will. Because if God can use them individually and collectively, he can use you and he can use me. Here's the deal. I read the Bible just like you do or I try to. Most days, right? And there's a lot of things that I just go, man, I can't live up to that. I, I'm not good as that. I, I'm not, I, I, 
I'm not smart enough, strong enough to do that. But when I see the weaknesses of the humanity of the individuals in Scripture, that's what I identify with because I'm weak. Because I, my insecurities way over to take me. And um, I feel like, man, there's no way. God, how can you use me? How can you do this? And about the time I feel like I got it all down, it's kind of like a Tupperware lid. I got all three corners down and I'm burping the fourth one. Another one pops up. It's like, I just, and as I look at these lives of these men that Jesus uses to change the world, it's such a strange way to change the world. It's such a motley crew. Yet God in his infinite wisdom chose them the same way he chooses you and me to change our world. They're imperfect for you and I. They were important to Jesus. Let's take this journey together over these next couple of weeks. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you today for your word that gives us such clear illustration of not only who you are, but how you work through imperfect people. And Jesus, I know that you were tempted and tried in every way that I am yet without sin. But when I see how it's lived out among the disciples, it gives me hope. So I pray that today and over the course of these next several weeks, as we journey together at the Milwaukee campus and the Brookfield campus and the Appleton campus and the Germantown campus and online, God, I just pray that you will help us to see ourselves. And if you can use these individuals, you can use us. And if you can give grace to these individuals, you can give grace to us. And help us to change our world. In Jesus' name.